Hello and welcome to the Noodlebugs podcast, where we discuss aspects of the natural world. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Today I'm talking to Ben, who's a paleontologist. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm great, Ned. Thank you for having me on the show. Are you excited? Yeah, I'm really excited. Because I'm very excited as well. I, I can't wait to talk about all the wonderful stories and the in-depth information about the past. It's going to be a great session. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I think I'm going to learn a lot. Well, I mean, is there anything that really interests you about paleontology that we should talk about first? Is there any burning questions you really want to know? I do have a lot of burning questions, as you say it, but <laughs> they might be like for like saving for later. So you oh, can that's okay. Start, so you can like start off simple, like for for example, what first got you interested in fossils, Ben? Oh, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and I think my love of dinosaurs got me involved in uh, learning about fossils like every young kid. You know, my, my uncle, when I was at the age of four, he gave me a book titled um, The Age of Dinosaurs, and it was this fascinating book with all these wonderful colored pictures of these terrifying dinosaurs, these terrible lizards that once reigned supreme on the earth, and it just captivated my imagination like no other. And it made me ask the question, well, if there are dinosaurs, what other questions are out there? And when you ask that question, you see these giant pterosaurs, the sizes of small planes, you start to delve into the evolutionary lineages of the animals that live around us today, like that of elephants, whales, seals, you name it. And every single one of those lineages have this fascinating past to which I just want to know everything about. So it was my burning desire to know everything about everything around us. Wow, that's a super cool, like, superhero origin story you got there, Ben. <laughs> I just really like dinosaurs, to be honest with you. I just thought that's just, that's just so different from what we see today. Because, I mean, Ned, what do you know of a Tyrannosaurus Rex? Uh, Can you give me any defining characteristics that make a T-Rex interesting? They're big, they're scary, they got short arms, <laughs> and big heads. Yeah, so, like... They are just truly fascinating. There is no modern creature that lives on the planet today like Tyrannosaurus rex. Here is a creature that has teeth the same size as banana. Bananas, an incredible bite force capable of taking a chunk of flesh more than 80 kilograms in weight with a single bite. It could leer into a two-story household, weighed the same as an African bull elephant. Its arms, that everyone thinks are really tiny, are bigger than mine, bigger than your dad's as well, and they could very easily arm wrestle me and into submission. So they could probably bench press more than 200 kilograms, even though they only had two fingers on the end of them. So there's just so much that's just wonderful about these creatures, and I just had to know more about them. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And it's very interesting. So, <laughs> yeah. if you love dinosaurs so much, and you, like, look at their bones, what is the most inter interesting fossil you found yourself? 
Well, I, I was really interested in dinosaurs for a very long time, like most paleontologists. I think you could ask that to anyone who studies the past, and they would say your dinosaurs are like a gateway drug to understanding science. You can talk to physicists, you can talk to chemists, they might all say exactly the same thing. The thing that got them interested in science is that of dinosaurs. Um, but then, you know, um, the most interesting thing that I found is the remains of this giant predator called Leviathan. It's the one of the largest macro predators that have ever existed. It's a type of sperm whale, but very unlike the sperm whales that you see today. Whereas in the sperm whales of today, they're huge. They get to more than 20 meters in length. The absolute biggest individuals, 80 metric tons, they have only teeth on their lower jaws. But these predators had teeth on their upper jaws that interlocked with one another. The first uh, portion of bone, partial skull, was actually discovered back in 2008 in the middle of a Peruvian desert. The scientists called it Leviathan. And since that time, tiny little specks of bones and teeth have been found all over the world. And one of the most interesting things that I've found are some of the remains of this animal. And to give you an idea of the size of its Teeth. Have you ever drunk from a 1.25 liter Coke bottle before, Ned? No. No, no, probably a good thing, actually. So um, they're the size of a Coke bottle. They're huge. They're the biggest functional teeth, so biting teeth, of any creature ever found, both live or dead. So that is just is so exciting to me to think that we had this creature that used to live around us, but used to be on our doorstep. And the last vestige of this creature that can be found anywhere on the planet is here in Melbourne. It's pretty cool. That is awesome. That makes me feel a bit worried that I might go, might go swimming and suddenly, <laughs> for some reason, a big toothy thing comes out of the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> that, that piece of seaweed that touches your foot, you have to think twice whether or not it's actually, you know, Olivia Tarn swimming past you from the past. Kind of terrifying. Another thing I all, yeah, yeah. Another thing I always wonder is when I see all the rocks on the bottom of the seafloor and stuff when I go to the beach or in like Port Phillip Bay and stuff. I always wonder with all these rocks everywhere, how do I know that one of them isn't a fossil? How am I supposed to tell? It can be really difficult at times. Now, imagine you're at the bottom of the seafloor, you're holding your breath. Bubbles are streaming past your mask. Um, it's not very good clarity. You can only see maybe a couple of meters ahead of you. And in front of you is this battlefield of loose rocks sitting on the bottom of the seafloor. And the rocks have got abalone, sea urchins, sea stars, brachiopods, bryozoans, a whole host of these tiny little algal creatures encrusting over the surface of each one. It makes it almost impossible to tell whether or not there's a fossil inside the rock. Um, and only really careful preparation and a knowledge, you know, of what you're looking for will be able to tell you if whether or not it is just a rock or whether or not that rock actually contains something much more important in it, like that of a fossil. Um, so it stumps me sometimes. I, I go diving all the time and looking for these fossils. And sometimes I look at these rocks and I think to myself, is it a fossil? Is it a bone? Is it, a, is it just a rock? I have to bring it back up to the surface and properly examine the specimen before I can actually determine whether or not it's a scientifically valuable specimen that should go into the collections of Museums Victoria or whether or not it's something that is just a rock and just put it back where it belongs. 
Um, but the other thing to also look out for are blue ring doctor pusses as well. Have you ever seen one of those before, Ned? No, but I no, no, I haven't. I must admit, <laughs> I have never seen one of those. <laughs> um, do I you know what I they know uh, what they can do if they bite you though? Uh, bad things, I assume. Yes. You can die, so they are, in fact, a venomous octopus, and they're hiding under some of these rocks that you're looking for the fossils for as well. So it's a really tricky thing to do, and it's only with years of practice that you can actually be able to tell whether or not it's a rock or it's a fossil. Yeah, I've noticed that Australia just tends to have a lot of dangerous things in the ocean, like box jellyfish and such. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, there's block... Like, so if you just take Port Phillip Bay... On an average dive, you've got those blue ring octopus, and you know if they bite you, you could die theoretically within about ten minutes. And I see them on every dive, but they're very cute. They won't do anything to you as long as you leave them alone. But then you've got the giant stingrays as well. They're the size of a car. They've got these huge barbs on the ends of their tail that are almost the same size as your entire arm. And uh, as long as you leave them alone, yeah, it's pretty big. As long as you leave them alone, they won't do anything to you as well. But, that you know, you get the occasional shark coming by every now and again. My friend was uh, diving down at Beau Morris where we go and collect these fossils, and he said a seal came past him, and they won't do anything to you in the water. They're very cute and almost cuddly underwater. It's on land that they're different. But they were scrutinizing him and seeing what he was doing, and they were really intrigued. So there's this wonderful myriad of animals that you come across every single time you go for a dive in Port Phillip Bay. Mm-hmm. So, the fossils that you find, how do you actually, how do they actually become fossils in the first place? How are they formed? How are fossils formed? It's a very good question, and it very much depends on how that animal or creature or organism lived throughout its lifetime. Because fossils can be basically anything that lived in the past. It can be algae. It can be fungi, it can be trees, it can be organisms like uh, fish, animals with a backbone, animals without a backbone, you name it. And it is a very particular set of circumstances that allow for these creatures to become fossilized over many millions and millions of years. So what I think is particularly amazing is if you go to the top of the Himalayas, you can find the remains of animals that lived at the very bottom of the ocean throughout the time of the dinosaurs, creatures called ammonites, small coiled shelled creatures. And of course, when those creatures were living, they, was, they, they died, they, they, the carcass floated to the bottom of the seafloor, and what happened over many thousands of years, sediment piled up on top of them, and then those sediments actually uh, became uh, much harder. And the surrounding rock itself actually piled up, heated up uh, the creature that was there. So any biological kind of, uh, so the tentacles that were really soft decayed away. Uh, and with time, with the succession of each new layer that was deposited on top of that animal, it also crushes the animal to a certain extent. And because, do you know much about plate tectonics, Ned? Uh, they walk crashed together to make mountains. That's right. But they, you know, you look at uh, the Australian continent where we live right now, it's moving at about the same rate as your fingernails every single year. But if you multiply that by the amount of time, many millions of years, you get these incredible collisions. So, uh, you know, during the time of the dinosaurs, Australia was joined into a giant uh, supercontinent called Gondwanaland. And Gondwanaland included. Uh, South America, 
India of all things, which is a really strange one to think because it's right up in the uh, Asian continent right now. Um, South Africa, Antarctica, and there was a whole bunch of others as well, and they slowly migrated away from one another. So the movement of those giant plates and enabled uh, the fossils to then be piled up on top of one another until we get to a situation where they're then exposed, probably by erosion, uh, so by a rock fall, by something like that, and we see the remains of this animal that was once there many millions of years before. So... If it's like, if that's how a fossil is formed, you always say this fossil existed like 360 million years ago or something like that. How do you actually know how old they are? Uh, and that's a great question. For the longest time, it was kind of a sore point for paleontologists as well, trying to figure out their age. And in order to understand it, what you really need to do is just understand a little bit about chemistry as well. Now, all organisms and all elements that are around us today decay on a linear rate. They decay over time from point A to point B. And what we can see is that uh, they decay over time from point A to point B over a linear period of time. And if you look at the right types of elements, you might be actually able to date how quickly they've been decaying and therefore have an estimate of their age. Now, the one that everyone's really familiar with is carbon dating. And carbon dating can give you a fantastic estimate of around 50,000 years when you look at the way in which carbon decays in fossils, in organisms, in things that have been around for about 50,000 years. For me, uh, I utilize an element strontium. It is a really important one that we use that we can find in these tiny little shells called brachiopods. They're also called lampshells. So what you need to do is understand the sequence of events in the cliffs, how the sediments have deposited on top of one another, and then you look at these lampshells and understanding the way in which the strontium itself, this element, decays within the organism can give you a relative age of what we know of these fossils. So for the areas that I look, and we just take Bayside as an example, we take these lampshells out of the cliff, we extract the strontium with this unique technology, and then it gives us a rough estimate of between five and six million years of age. It's, it's quite a tricky process, uh, but it's phenomenal. The power that we can get from actually understanding the past, you know, and what this really does is it shows us that the, the planet and, and life on this planet has been around for a staggering amount of time, not just tens of thousands of years, but billions of years. And that's something that's really important. Mm -hmm. So if you know how to know how a fossil is formed and you can tell how old they are, how do you actually know what the animal looks like? Like, how do you know uh... that the fish is actually a bird or a skeleton? <laughs> of something is actually what you think it is it's pretty tricky and sometimes we just have to use our best guess because um things that don't preserve in the fossil record very well hair flesh uh cartilage so you know the bit if you wiggle your nose right now your nose is made up of cartilage uh, but we've never found any cartilage on ancient humans before so we don't expect to find it um, what we have to do is we have to look at their closest living ancestors today that live around us. So, for example, if you've ever seen an elephant skull before, they have this bizarre hole in the center of their head. And if you didn't know what an elephant looks like, if you didn't know it had a gigantic trunk, 
and that was where the area where the muscle attachment sites went for the trunk there's no way that you'd ever reconstruct it with a trunk without knowing that information before you could guess but it'd be a big hefty guess unless you knew what the living relatives of them looked like today um luckily for us you know when it comes to the periods of time that we're looking at um, most of the animals you know sharks whales birds um, they're still alive today so there's some living ancestor that we can try and figure out and be like okay we know that it should roughly look like this creature we can look at the the modern anatomy of that creature and kind of put two and two together and say okay we should roughly look something like this uh, but then there are creatures in the fossil record that have no living relatives today at all so um, there's one group from the Triassic known as the Trypanosaurs and they are so incredibly bizarre. No one has any idea what they properly look like. They look like a mix uh, between a sloth and a chameleon. And everyone has different ideas of what this creature looks like. There's another really famous example called Helicoprian from 290 million years ago. It has a gigantic well of teeth. And that's the only thing that's ever been found of it. It looks like a giant buzzsaw. How on earth are you supposed to reconstruct a creature from a giant buzzsaw? So as you can imagine, uh, paleo artists have come up with all these different ways for trying to figuring out how this creature looked, and some of them are completely different from one another. Uh, the only way in which we'll ever be able to really know is with the fossil record and having a perfectly preserved specimen. Uh, so in the case of this uh, 290 million year old shark helicopter, and the only way we'll ever know is if there's a perfectly immaculately preserved individual with everything preserved, but we haven't found anything like that before. There's, there's no evidence of anything but the jaw. So it's a lot of guesswork. It can be really tricky at the best of times, but I think that's what makes it really exciting. You know, like, have you ever seen a hippo skull before, Ned? Uh, no, actually. After this podcast, you should look it up because it looks okay. nothing like you would expect a hippo to look like. It's got these terrifying teeth jutting out. It looks like an absolute monster. It's very cool. But it gives you an idea of what you should expect to see when you're reconstructing these animals. It's a really tricky task, and it means that you have to have a very intimate knowledge of anatomy, how the muscles work and how to put flesh on the bone. Okay. So, have there have there ever been any like serious mistakes? <laughs> like people have thought something was a fish when it was actually a bird. All the time, like I would say, happens way more often than you think. There is a type of uh, shark that's at the Melbourne Museum as we speak uh, that was identified as a six-gilled shark. It's actually the corner of a much larger megatooth shark tooth. Uh, it was identified in the 1920s, and it's still mislabeled. So uh, there's, there's still plenty of things like that. I made a mistake not too long ago. I found a fossil that I thought belonged to a sawfish. And so sawfish are the ones with the really long uh, nose on the front of their face, and then they've got the teeth sticking out of it. And I thought that I had found a tooth. One of the rostral teeth is what they're called from the nose of the sawfish, and I was certain of it. I even gave talks, and I said, we had these giant sawfish in Bayside five million years ago turns out it's not from a sawfish um, i was able to look at other creatures understand more about their anatomy um, and what it turned out to be was the uh, spine the dorsal spine so of the front uh, fin of a port jackson shark a, a, a prehistoric type of port jackson shark 
So it does happen more often than you think. There are some very funny examples where we make mistakes all the time. I make mistakes all the time. But this is the beauty of science. It's about understanding where you went wrong and trying to do a little bit better each and every single time. Mm -hmm. So is it possible for you to ever be able to perfect it? Mm, and it really depends on the fossils that you can find. If you find an entire skeleton, then yeah, you might have a good chance of trying to reconstruct what the animal looks like. So there's this one place, uh, an amazing fossil site uh, in Peru, in the Ica province. It's mm -hmm. a giant inland desert that used to be the bottom of the seafloor about seven to eight million years ago. Um, you wouldn't expect features like keratin like the same stuff that made up of your hair to be preserved in the fossil record but guess what they're finding it they're finding the baleen from very large baleen whales preserved in the rock um, and in one fantastic fossil that was shown recently they even have the skin outline uh, of an ancient type of toothed whale that lived eight million years ago so you can actually reconstruct quite well what these creatures would have looked like on the basis of this information um, some of the most fantastic fossils come uh, from the mid-Jurassic period, ichthyosaurs. Um, and for a long time, nobody knew how to really reconstruct the tail of an ichthyosaur because it looks very strange. There's no living relative today for this marine reptile. They were just as common as dolphins were today. And they are thought to be the convergent equivalent of that of a dolphin, but it was a reptile until uh, there's this fantastic fossil deposit called the Solfhaven deposit in Germany and skin impressions were also found in the rock and it actually enabled us to see exactly what their tails looked like. We never thought we'd ever find evidence like that. Um, one of the other most famous examples is that of Archaeopteryx, the flying bird-like dinosaur uh, that it revolutionized the way in which we thought about birds. Uh, for before the, the 1860s, People saw birds as that they had always been birds. You know, there was no evolution or anything like that until Charles Darwin had come along. Um, and then there was this fossil that was discovered in Germany. And what it demonstrated is that these dinosaurs, this was a creature, Archaeopteryx, that had dinosaur-like traits uh, and bird-like traits as well. Feathers were inherently that, they belonged to the dinosaurian lineage. So when, of course, we see uh, birds today, we think of them as dinosaurs but that was a fossil that was preserved with feathers something you wouldn't expect to be found finding in the fossil record so it really depends on the fossil that you're looking at and that's why it's so exciting every time you go out you can make this incredible discovery that changes the way in which we view evolution and science okay so with these fossils how do you not get the animals mixed up like for example you find the tooth of some shark and you think you found its tail but it actually wasn't its tail it was some other animal's tail and you have no <laughs> idea well this is where you have to have a very good understanding of anatomy so the internal structure of how organisms work so understanding how their bones come together um, and when you have a really good knowledge of the classification of life as well and you've got lots of numerous examples um, you can pick out a single bone. Like, for example, a friend showed me the, a, a type of humerus, so this upper arm bone yeah. of a seal. And instantly I went, I know it's a seal because it has the characteristics of a seal humerus. 
Um, the amazing thing about the evolution of life on our planet is that we all come from a common ancestor. So Ned, have a look at your hands right now. You've got five digits on the end of one of your hands. It's something called the pentadactyl limb, pentadactyl limb. And it is shared amongst most of the creatures that walk on this planet today. Polar bears, walruses, uh, even some forms of fish have this pentadactyl limb that you can see. Frogs, amphibians, reptiles, uh, even birds have it to a lesser extent. You know horses? They're just standing on their middle finger, just like this. This part is actually the hoof, which I think is really interesting. So knowing that information as well, you can start to look at the differences between each of those bones and you can start to make really close judgment calls about which one is which, but it only comes with learning about the bones and having an extensive knowledge of that as well. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a lot of things you could get wrong in paleontology. Yeah, like... you really can. And you have to be really confident about it. So whenever we do find something and we think it's this amazing thing, um, and what should be the case with all of science, what you need to do is collaborate with other researchers so that they can then verify what it is that you found. So you can say, I think it's this, you know, I think that this is the limb bone of the largest flying bird that's ever existed. Send that off to another scientist, send it to a picture to that, to that person that's world famous, that knows a lot about this kind of stuff. If they come back and they said, yep, what you've got is a limb bone of the largest flying bird. You go, great, I'm going to get one more person to double check. And then they go, yep, that's also a limb bone of another, you know, the largest flying bird that ever existed. You've got to make absolutely certain that what you're looking at is what you're looking at. Like, and there's been numerous times, um, like we mentioned before, where we've gotten it wrong. So you want to make sure that when you do declare that you've made, you found the biggest of something, you found the longest of something, that you've actually done that. Um, there was a scientific paper that came out a couple of years ago that looked at the largest flying bird that ever lived called Heligornis from Antarctica. And they declared that they had found portions of its lower jaw, which has got this bizarre pseudo-tooth-like structure jutting along the jaw itself. Well, a researcher looked at that and said, that's not from a large flying bird, that's actually from a fish. And it turns out it was from a fish and they had made a huge mistake and they had made a scientific article and everything. So they had to retract it and actually say, yes, it actually was a fish and changes what we know of this creature on our planet. So I hear you talking a lot about like the largest limb bones and the largest, the largest a lot of things. And I know people always say, oh, the blue whale's the largest thing ever. Oh, the megalodon's the largest thing ever. The T-Rex is the largest thing ever. So what actually is the largest creature ever to have like well, ever existed on Earth? It's a great question, Ned. It really is. And who knows? With new fossil evidence, we, it, it, we might be able to tell something different in, say, 10 years' time when Depends people listen back to this back. podcast. Yeah, so, you know, there's one researcher who thinks that they've found a portion of ichthyosaur, so that giant marine reptile that got to the size of a blue whale. But he's only found a tiny little portion of its lower jaw. So he's not entirely certain how big the entire animal could get, but by looking at smaller uh, variations of those ichthyosaurs and you blow it up to that size, they could very well reach blue whale size, but we're not entirely sure because there's not enough fossil evidence. So, you know, watch this space. Um, people would say that T-Rex is one of the largest land predators that has ever existed. You know, 
10 metric tons is a fair estimate for that creature. So the largest African bull elephant that's ever lived is about the same size, um, you know, four meters tall at the shoulder kind of thing for an African bull elephant. Um, when you look at the Megalodon, it's understandable because we're still, all we really find of this creature are its teeth, but its teeth are huge. Um, the same size as your face. Yeah, they're just gigantic. So people look at these teeth and go, how big could it possibly be? And the estimate varies anywhere between 15 and 22 meters long. For me, I don't think it got any bigger than about 15 to 16 meters in length. Still a really big animal, probably weighed the same as a humpback whale at around 40 to 50 metric tons in weight. It was one of the biggest toothed predators that ever existed. Uh, in terms of the largest toothed predators, sperm whales, the modern sperm whales that we find today. Uh, I think the absolute largest was a bull that was 24 meters in length and weighed 80 metric tons and it's possible you know maybe the megalodon got to that size as well but i don't think it probably got to 24 meters in length but then you're right the blue whale is the absolute undisputed champion of size and it's a real shame because the fin whale is gigantic you know it's probably the biggest creature that's ever lived if you took the blue whale away from that equation but it's always overshadowed um, and the blue whale today, I think estimates of around 180 to 200 metric tons. So think of something weighing the same as about 30 African elephants stacked on top of each other. They have the largest single continuous bone structure ever recorded in the animal kingdom. Their lower jaw, up to six, maybe even seven meters in length. It's even bigger than the largest great white shark, just their jaw ever found. Um, they're young when they're born, is the size of an elephant. They'll suckle 400 liters of milk every single day. It's, it's absolutely astounding. Like there is no creature that really comes close to a blue whale. Even the largest land creature that ever lived, the sauropods, the long-necked dinosaurs, they were big, but they were only getting to about maybe 70 to 90 metric tons in size. Blue whale is confidently 180 metric tons and the most exciting thing about it i think is that it's alive today you know seeing whales have you ever seen a whale before ned um i might have done i think i have i think i have yeah you probably would have been on a boat at the time and you would have seen this huge behemoth just come up to it this massive shadow um, you know, when you go whale watching the next time and you see a humpback whale, a humpback whale is only half the size in terms of length of a blue whale. It, it, it's really staggering. The, the sheer volume, the sheer size of these creatures cannot be understated. It is just so tremendously large. It's so exciting. So exciting. That's a lot of big numbers. Yeah, isn't it? Every single statistic is like, whoa. Um, like my, the other favorite one. That I, that I neglected to say is they eat tiny little creatures called krill that look like prawns and the prawns are about no bigger than the size of your thumb can you imagine eating 40 million of them every single day that seems like that's it would just, be a very tedious yeah, process <laughs> i know but that's how many that the blue whale eats it is a staggering amount of food they must get very hungry <laughs> could you imagine i just imagine they grumble from their stomach as well you'd hear it from a distance it, it'd be horrendous getting up for a midnight snack 
<laughs> I think they're almost the kind of animal that just never stops eating. When you have to eat that much, you'd be like, they don't sleep that much, you know? You're probably eating in your sleep often as well. Mm -hmm. So, I know that the cheetah is considered the fastest animal at the moment, but that is also... Was that always correct, or was there once something way faster? Fantastic question. And unfortunately, we will never know. There is no way in which we will ever be able to determine this. Uh, understanding the anatomy of extinct creatures is so, so difficult, and trying to picture the musculature on these creatures is just as tricky. Um, so, yeah, how, do you know how fast a cheetah can get to? It's over 100 kilometers, right? An yeah. hour. Yeah, it's pretty fast. It's entirely possible that there was a type of dromaeosaur, that there was a type of bird that may have even run faster than that. Um, but unfortunately, we just won't know because we don't have the same tools in which to measure just how fast these creatures could get to. Uh, and we can guess, but I mean, um, look at the example of the megalodon. We still don't know how big it is. We have no idea just its huge size, let alone how fast it could swim or anything like that. So it's a great question. And unfortunately, Ned, I think it's one that no one will ever be able to answer. That's a bit sad. <laughs> we have to go into the past. We need to create that technology, you know? That'd be fun. Mm. So, could you outline, like, the major extinctions for us that actually made the fossils possible to be formed in the first place? So, extinction is a relatively common thing. And it happens to a lot of different species all the time. So um, extinction is thought to... So uh, every species on the planet lives for about 2 million years and then something's got to happen. They either have to evolve a set of traits so that they can adapt to their surroundings or they die out. And like I said, extinction is relatively normal. Um, it's when you, you have a set of circumstances where there's the background rate of extinction is a lot higher than usual where you realize that something is very worrying and that's what of course what we find today now in prehistory there were five massive extinction events the worst one was the permian triassic extinction event of about 252 million years ago 95 percent of all life in a period of hundreds of thousands of years died out it is really that was the absolute worst one by far and there were previous extinction events that also wiped out other groups of animals uh but this one was by far the worst and uh so i said 95 percent. it was at a time where all the continents were merging into this one supercontinent called pangaea and the inland aridification so massive deserts that were able to form right at the center of this gigantic supercontinent were thought to wipe out a number of different creatures there's also other guesswork for you know maybe it was a meteorite like what killed the dinosaurs who knows it's really hard to tell because most of the evidence we have for it is unfortunately um not there anymore because of how plate tectonics works and how subduction of the crust is then destroyed as well so we don't have that physical evidence to really tell us what was going on at that pivotal period of time in the evolution of life the other really famous one of course though was uh, the one that killed out the dinosaurs 66 million years ago and uh, louis alvarez came up with a hypothesis that suggested that it was from an extraterrestrial source you know what that source was though don't you ned 
a big meteorite. <laughs> That's true. It wasn't an alien with a giant laser or anything like that. So it was a meteorite, and it was a massive meteorite. You know, think of something the size of Mount Everest traveling 20 times the speed of a bullet. It shuddered into Mexico 66.03 million years ago and created the equivalent of 130 billion atomic bombs being dropped in the same spot. Tsunamis, giant waves enveloped the Earth, uh, sometimes up to maybe even four kilometers in height. And it was estimated about 75% of all life was wiped out, including that of the dinosaurs. Of course, there were some dinosaurs that survived. You know what they are, though, don't you, Ned? Penguins? Penguins, that's right. The, the birds, the penguins, of course. Penguins are just marine dinosaurs. They're just so cool. Oh, don't even get me started on penguins. They're so penguins cool. are my favorite animal. Oh, we should talk about them. Did you know that there were penguins that were the size of people? There was one that was the size of LeBron James that got to six foot six 30 million years ago. Wow, that's cool, a, that a large penguin. It is gigantic. And it had, they were called the spear built penguins uh, because their skull looked a little bit like a spear. And we don't actually know what how they used their skull in order to eat the fish that they were consuming or whatever prey that it was that they were consuming at the time. Um, so we have the dinosaur extinction event at about 66 million years ago that wiped out 75% of life. And then, of course, we had the extinction event that's happening. There were other smaller extinction events that went all the way around that um, critical junctures of evolutionary time, which we give different names for the different times. So, for example, the uh, Pliocene occurs at about 5.22 million years ago and extends all the way to the beginning of the Pleistocene, where the really hard ice ages really start to come about at about 1.8 million years of age. So it, it usually corresponds with a, some really sudden, incredible world-ending event uh, that usually takes over a period of hundreds of thousands of years. It's not an instantaneous thing in most cases, unlike what it was like for the dinosaurs. Uh, but of course, what we find today is that we are in an extinction event of our own, the human-mediated extinction event. Some scientists have called it the Anthropocene. It's still heavily debated uh, whether or not we should actually call it the Anthropocene at all, but there's no doubting that we are in an extinction event itself. And the estimate is that the background rate is anywhere between 100 and 1,000 times higher than usual, and it's because of what we're doing to the planet. Mm-mm. So, if those are the major extinctions, including the one that's happening now, in in the book Sapiens, I don't know if you've read that, but... I have read that, yes. It's pretty that, quite good, yes. In that book, they say that humans were responsible for the extinction of mammoths and some other prehistoric animals of that time. So, do you actually believe... Or do you believe that? Because, I mean, I understand that humans have wiped out some species, like the Tasmanian tiger, but that's when we have technology, and, I mean, not extreme technology, but a fair amount of technology. And if humans were already, like, wiping out their first races when they were, like six years old i mean not six years old but in terms of species six years old then that's quite yeah. scary i think there's no doubt that humans are implicated in the extinctions of many different faunas all across the world in the late pleistocene from about fifty thousand years all the way to about till now 
Um, and with the mammoths, there's there's no doubt that they are responsible for the extinction of them. Um, you know, there is so much evidence in the fossil record from uh, arrows embedded in the side of the mammoth tibia bones, uh, from you know even carcasses that you know and cave paintings of humans hunting them. It's it's very obvious. Uh, woolly rhinos as well as another perfect example of that um so on a number of continents so i was saying in eurasia so europe and asia in north america especially uh, and south america it's pretty obvious that humans are responsible for the extinction of most of the megafauna but the really interesting thing is they may not have been implicated in the extinction of the megafauna in australia and what we see is that the first peoples probably came to the continent at about 65, 60,000 years ago. And the estimate varies considerably depending on who you talk to. It could even be as large as 108,000 years ago, maybe even 112. Um, and what we see is that the first peoples probably lived relatively harmoniously with these creatures for a very long time, uh, in excess of about 20,000 years before they went extinct. And that, you know, silver bullet, as it were, which, you know, shows that humans hunted out and killed off the mammoths and the mowers in uh, New Zealand is another example, isn't there in Australia. There's no evidence of the first peoples actually butchering giant diprotodontids, those giant wombat-like creatures that got to the size of hippos. Um, there's no arrows embedded in their bones. There's no cut marks. There's no school marks. There's no uh, charcoal associated with them. Um, the best prevailing theory, I think, is that when the first peoples came to the continent, they also brought with them back burning techniques. And it changed up the ecological regime to such an extent that the plants uh, started to spore at different times when they probably didn't used to. And uh, that, coupled with this incredible climate, this inland aridification is what it's called the deserts were expanding from either side we know australia today as a red hot baking desert because you, know, you look at all the rue and all the kinds but it wasn't always like that even three hundred and fifty thousand years ago and i know that doesn't seem it seems like a long time but it really isn't in terms of the evolutionary history of life there were forests from either side to side throughout most of its evolutionary history there were lush rainforests in australia and it was just at this critical junction where humans were also coming into Australia that we also see uh, the extinction of the megafauna. So I think climactic periods um, of massive drought-like periods uh, and the appearance of humans and indirect methods like backburning techniques probably killed off the megafauna, but it's still debated. We're still going to be finding that evidence. The only way we're ever going to really know, and this is the best thing about paleontology, Ned, is you've just got to get out there and continue to find the kick-ass material that tells us more about this story. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you said that it was most definitely, obviously, um, the fault of humans that mammoths and such went extinct, but say, have you actually found that many um, mammoth bones with, like, arrows embedded on them? And maybe... I do believe that mammoths were hunted by humans, but a mammoth is a mammoth. Surely you would only need to hunt one and have food for like a week. You're completely right. I mean, you look at the size of a mammoth, like mammoths were thought to be the size of the biggest African elephants that are alive today. So, you know, that 10 metric ton range is entirely possible. You look at us, you know, 80 to 100 kilograms in weight, we're tiny. 
but we have one of the most important weapons at our disposal, our brain, and the ability to analytically think about these situations, create weapons, and um, there's no creature on the planet like us that can think in the way that humans do. Um, and it's by because of that thinking that we were able to get rid of the woolly mammoth. And we, we probably didn't realize at the time what we were doing. They just saw it as an immediate food source and an amazing food source at that because there's just so much food that comes from it. We now know differently from today. We know that our consequences will negatively affect the rest of the world and we have to preserve what we have because if we don't, it just disappears entirely. You use the example of the Tasmanian tiger before as one of those examples, you know, this was a creature that humans killed relatively recently and we probably will never be able to see again. But do not underestimate the intelligence of humans. We are one of the most terrifying super predators that have ever evolved on the planet and it's all due to our big brain in our head. Big head brain. So big. <laughs> we don't just have big brains, we got big heads. We like thinking about ourselves like we are the smartest. <laughs> I mean, when you look at us, you know, we have these tiny puny claws, like our bite force is just really terrible. We can't really bite that hard. Um, you know, we've got these tufts of hair that come out at random odd bits. Um, we're not that good, really, from an evolutionary point of view. Uh, we, don't, we don't have many adaptations that would allow us uh, to thrive in the cold. But when you've got that humongous brain, um, disproportionately larger in retrospect to the body size of any other creature, um, it can enable you to live in these very harsh environments and capitalize on them as well. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting that like humans, like, well, it's kind of obvious in a way, but it's also hidden that humans aren't that strong because you always imagine, if you imagine like a human versus a bear, you always imagine them having like a sword or something. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to imagine like what the first humans would have been like when they didn't really have established tribes and weapons or anything. It must have been so hard to survive. It would have been absolutely devastating. I mean, uh, drought would have had a huge effect on them. Um, diseases also would have had a huge effect on their populations. Um, depends on how far back you want to go. I mean, you can go as far back as about three to four million years ago with the Australopithecines, one of our distant ancestors when they were still climbing in the trees and were only about a metre tall. They looked very uh, chimpanzee-like um, and probably didn't use many tools at all and probably didn't live to be that old. Um, even Neanderthals, you know, that lived 50,000 years ago. Um, and they had culture, they, they dressed each other, they had these incredible weapons that they were able to use to take down their prey. They probably didn't get any older than about 30 or 40 years of age. That was a good lifespan. Now, you know, you can live to be the age of 80, even 100 years. They wouldn't have been able to imagine it. So the technological advances that we've been able to create over the last very short period of time, it's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So... We talked about extinctions a little while ago. So, what is the evidence of a major flood at the end of the last ice age? Like they refer to in it, it they refer to it in the Bible and some other ancient religious stories, like that. 
Yeah, it's a really curious one, actually. You bring up a very interesting thread, and I believe that there was this kind of global phenomenon that did occur all around the world, uh, because we're looking at a pivotal period of human history at about four or 5,000 years ago. And, um, I mean, look at, look at our own history in our own backyard with Port Phillip Bay. 10,000 years ago, Port Phillip Bay didn't exist. There was three main tributaries, rivers that ran... Uh, through the bay itself, but there was no bay. And there wasn't that 2,000 square kilometre of open water that we can see today. Mm -hmm. um, it was only with the flooding and the melting of the polar ice caps that inundated low-lying areas that the bay was formed. And the Bunwarang people themselves, the people from which I sit today and I, you know, that I acknowledge um, in, in where I'm living in um, southeast suburbs of Melbourne, um, they talk about a time of chaos where the water rose very quickly. And there's no doubt that there's a parallel with that kind of flooding event that also happens in the Bible. There's also uh, something called Gilgamesh that also happens. There is a period that is recorded throughout human history in almost every single part of the world that talks about a major flooding event. So there is something that clearly happens. We're not entirely sure what it was, but we look at the polar ice caps in the extent that they were in the past, and there's no doubt that there was some period of global warming, naturally occurring global warming that was occurring that flooded some low-lying areas. Um, it's, it's pretty phenomenal to think that we've been able to capture it across many different types of groups of people all over the world. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting to know because... I have done a little bit of research on that, and it's been really hard to come up with an answer. Yeah, it's pretty tricky, actually. And um, I think we're still trying to figure it out right now, because if you write something down, you know, a lot of the language that you would have used 5,000 years ago would have been destroyed. You know, how many people would have passed on the Sumerian language from when they witnessed it? You know, there's not many people that can speak that language. So... Um, how do you record something like that for time in memoriam? It's almost impossible to do so. Uh, one of the reasons this time of chaos is preserved so well is because in, in the Bunurang people is because they pass it on in this incredible story that was told in a very factual way over many generations. Um, and they and they you know it it wasn't essentially uh, you know how you might whisper into one person's ear and you go to your another friend and you whisper to another person's ear oh. and then by the end something very different comes out. Oh, Chinese what we whispers. Found, yeah, very similar kind of thing to Chinese whispers or international whispers is what it's called. Um, what we find is um, that when you did that with many um, of, the, of the native people's folklore from this area is that the story was almost identical in every single scene, which is something that you wouldn't expect mm -hmm. at all. So um, how they were able to do it, it's, it's a bit of a mystery, uh, to be honest with me. I'm not entirely sure how, how the first people were able to record such an incredible period of of time over such a long period with 10,000 years is so long. How many different generations are involved in that? A lot. Um, so many, a crazy amount of people that would have lived and died in between us than when they lived throughout that story. But it is fascinating in its own right. And again, the only way we're gonna be able to continue to find out more about it is by going out there and trying to find more of these records, more of these tablets that people have written down or learning more about the ancient languages of the people that came before us. Mm hmm. So, 
if you've told me about all these really interesting things, but there's one question we haven't asked you yet, which we've asked, I think everyone so far, maybe, I think, yeah, I think everyone, which is what would a perfect world look like to you? Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good question. And a perfect world to me uh, would be one where anyone can grow up and become anything they want. That would be so exciting. So there's a lot of people that, you know, kids are husband all the time, I want to be a paleontologist. And then inevitably they grow up and they don't become a paleontologist at all. Um, Science at the moment um, is kind of looked at in in a negative way. There's not much money going around for science. So what I would love to see is the government in particular throwing money at scientists. I would love to see scientists become the new celebrities like Kim Kardashian. That would be the most incredible thing to me. Uh, you know, you'd be walking down the street and you'd be like, that's the guy that names that incredible animal. And you'd just be flooded with all the paparazzi. You know, that's the person that, you know, found out that incredible thing about cell biology. And, you know, they, they'd be, it'd be really exciting if, if that was the world in which we lived rather than talk about these celebrities that do nothing at all, but rather talk about people who have accomplished these incredible things. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a that's a real problem that I see on like like if you go onto YouTube, the first thing will be some dude who plays a block game for a living <laughs> and is like the, the most famous person in the world. And what they're doing is it's kind of boring. Like what we're doing, and, and just think of paleontology itself. It is a front for understanding the evolution of life and where and how these creatures have evolved on our planet when you think of the evolution of the whale this is a creature that once walked on land 50 million years ago they went back into the water and became the biggest creatures that have ever lived the only reason we know that is because of the fossil record and because of the bones that we can find uh, dating those bones and understanding the anatomy of whales today and it's mind-blowing to me well thank you for being here today with us ben it was really interesting And you seem really engaged and, like, I've just learnt so much. And also, credits to um, his YouTube channel, of A Fool's Experiment. You, can, you should go and watch some of his videos. They're really interesting. Thank you, Ned, for having me on the show. I had lots of fun. It's so much fun talking about this stuff with you. And, and you asked some fantastic questions as well. I'm going to be telling everybody to come and listen to your podcast. So thanks so much for having me on. <laughs> Congratulations, you've made it to the end of this Noodlebugs podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Look out for other Noodlebugs podcasts that may be coming soon, and have a good day.